Today, I'd like to look at uh, Psalm 95 and share with you some scriptures on the theme of God as our creator. And I've been doing some writing on this the last several years, and I've just learned a lot of things that really touched my heart. I'd just like to share a few things with you about God as the creator. Unfortunately, when we talk about, you know, creation and Genesis 1, it it seems like it always kind of gets into this big discussion about the relationship of science to scripture and evolution to creation and the age of the earth and all these issues. And we, we just kind of leave out one little part, uh, the creator. We, we forget to talk about, oh, yeah, God created us, which is really what it's about. Uh, we get caught off on the side issues. And it's not to say that the side issues aren't important, but they're not as important. And so I'd, I'd like to start today by, by just looking at a few verses here in Psalm 95 to focus our thoughts and to see what the Lord might have for us as we, we just consider this, uh, this great truth that in our world today is pretty much forgotten, not just in the secular world, but in the world at large pretty much forgotten, even in the church, seldom spoken about. Let's read together Psalm 95, starting verse 6, the psalmist writes, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. I just wonder how much, how often does that really affect your thinking, your daily life? When was the last time you really reflected on the fact that God created you? Now, I'm not saying you question in your life, did he create me or not? The controversies, did we evolve? Um, we did not evolve. That's not what the scriptures teach. We can talk about that in a moment. But just the fact that he created you. When was the last time you really stepped back and thought about that? What does it practically mean to you that God created you? Now, we just remember the Lord with bread and wine, and we put a great emphasis on the fact that God saved us, and rightfully so. I mean, the, the work of Christ on the cross is uh, maybe the pinnacle revelation of the person of God. What a wonderful God we have. And what a wonderful thing to be saved. But that isn't the only thing God's done for us. He, he's also created us. And, and, and we shouldn't, to the exclusion of that, just focus on the fact that he saved us. Because the, the fact that he created us in itself is an amazing thing. In fact, look what the psalmist is saying here. Now, uh, he doesn't say, come let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our future Savior. I mean, he could have said that, the one who will deliver us, he could have said that. That was revealed in Genesis 3.15 that there would be one who would crush the head of Satan, would come, the seed of a woman. We, we see it pictured in Genesis chapter 3, when, when the Lord made the skins for Adam and Eve. We see it pictured in the tree of life, that there, there is life in God, the sustaining life. He could have said that, but that isn't what the emphasis is here. So let's let the scripture speak for itself. Let's focus just on what it's saying here. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. 
What would have happened if in the announcements this morning, the elders had announced we're going to have a special time of worship this Wednesday. We want everybody to come ready to worship, and we're going to simply worship God as our creator. You'd be going, well, can you do that? I mean, is that, is that biblically correct? Um, can, you, can you just focus on one aspect of God for an evening and worship him as our creator? Well, why not? I mean, that's what it says here. If that said Wednesday night, come and worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, for he is our God. Well, why is he our God? He is our God because he created us. And he is our maker and our sustainer. He's the one who gives us life. And that's why we should worship him. You say, no, no, no. We should worship him because he saved us. No, we should worship him for both reasons. Because he created us, and he saved us, and he loves us, and he's blessed us, and he's revealed himself to us. I mean, we could list 500 things. But certainly near the top of that list should be the fact that he created us. I hope you still believe that. I hope, it, I hope, it's, I hope sometimes you've, you've really meditated on it. Look what it says. Come, let us worship. We should worship God. We should bow down, prostrate ourselves before him, kneel in his presence. Before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We belong to him. Did you know in Acts chapter 17, it describes us as the offspring of God? Did you know in the genealogy of Christ, it describes Adam as the son of God? It's amazing when you really start reflecting on what this means. He is our God. Now, notice in verse 7, almost imperceptibly, it, it, it kind of slides into metaphor. We are the people of his pasture. Well, I mean, what do you mean the people of his pasture? The sheep of his hand. Okay, now you understand this. We're we're not sheep. We're like sheep. We're like sheep in a pasture that belongs to our maker, who's God. And just like the shepherd who owns the pasture, owns the sheep that are in in the pasture, belong to him. Metaphorically speaking, we belong to God. He owns us. He made us. He sustains us. And the response of that should be worship to God. Notice it says, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now, again, it, it's, it, there's, there's a lot going on here. And uh, first of all, for the record, God doesn't have a hand, does he? God is a spirit being. So this is what's called an anthropomorphism. It's, it's attributing a, a human-like, uh, anthropos being the, the Greek word for, for man, a human-like attribute to divine God to help us to understand what's being said here. It's being put into metaphorical language that by analogy we could understand what it means. 
but the way our minds work, we, we, we process that just uh, subconsciously. We don't have to, we don't have to break it down and say, okay, now what part of this is anthropomorphic figurative language? What's metaphor? We just read it and it makes sense. We are the sheep of his pasture. We're the sheep of his hand. And if, if we go back, we, we get more of this imagery of the hand. Let's go back to verse one. He says, oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. Well, how how deep is the earth? You know, the, the planet on which we reside uh, has a radius of about 4,000 miles. I mean, that would take you from here all the way to like someplace in Germany. It's a long way. Or if you want to go south, it, w- it would take you beyond Panama. And, and the, 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 the earth, the depths of the Lord are in the hand of the Lord. So there he brings in again this imagery, like a man, a man's hand. He holds the earth the depths of the earth are held in his hand. The peaks of the mountain also are his. Below the earth and above the earth, he, he holds the whole thing in his hand. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. That's described in Genesis chapter 1 on the third day of creation. He separated the waters and, and dry land appeared. That was the work of his hands. And and it's picturing the the earth, he created the earth and he formed it. It's his. And the same is true of us. We should come and worship and bow down. We should kneel before the Lord, our maker. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Would you agree? Does anybody here have an objection to the fact that he created us and we are his? Now, let me just ask you, when was the last time you knelt down and worshipped your creator? Now, I I know we worship him for saving us. That first thing comes to our mind. We thank him for the cross. We thank you for our son. I don't want to take from that at all. But I would just like to ask ourselves, when was the last time we really worshipped him for having created us? It's kind of lost in our society, isn't it? because of all the teaching of evolution. If we evolved, who is our maker and who's our creator? Mother nature, the natural forces of biology and physics. And so for whom, before whom should we bow down and worship? We should worship the scientists. We should worship the, the laws of nature if it's all natural. I'm not going to, I hope you're not shocked by this, but if there's no God, We should all be evolutionists because if there's no God, there's no supernatural. If there's no supernatural, there's only the natural. If there's only the natural, we have to come about by some natural process. And right now, the the number one, uh, you know, offering for the natural process is evolution. So I'd go so far to say if there's no God, we should all be evolutionists, at least till somebody comes up with a better natural theory. Because here we are, we got here somehow. And if there's no God, we didn't come here by 
divine creation. There is no supernatural. So we came about through some natural process. And let's give Darwin some credit. He probably came up with the best idea, evolution through natural selection. For the record, Darwin did not believe in God. He did as a very young man, but not not God that you and I understand. He was raised in the Unitarian so-called church, which was an outflowing of the British Enlightenment, which was now flowing and contemporary with the French Enlightenment, which was a movement that exalted human reason above all else and rejected all revelation, all divine books, put the thinking of man and the philosophy of man above all other things. And that's, that's the tradition he was raised in, the Unitarian Church. His mother's side of the family were, were a long history of Unitarians. Now, some of you men not, not might know this, but I think most of the women would hear, who have been more cultured than us men, would be familiar with uh, Wedgwood, China. Uh, now, I have to admit, when, I didn't know that, but when I, when I met my wife, uh, her mother was from England, and she knew she was more refined than me. And uh, Wedgwood is that beautiful ceramic bone china that's kind of has this kind of a pale blue, often with white cameo reliefs. You all familiar with that? Well, Darwin married into the Wedgwood family. His wife was one of the heirs to the Wedgwood fortune. And the Darwin family and the Wedgwood family had intermarried many times. They were both wealthy families. And of course, especially in England, even today, there's more class consciousness in England than there is here in America. So you don't marry commoners like some guy from San Francisco. You, you, you know, if you, when you're up there, you, you intermarry. And so uh, she, that whole family was Unitarian. And on Darwin's side, there was also many Unitarians. But there were also what we would call today an agnostic. In fact, his grandfather, Erasmus um, Darwin, was, was a very well-known scholar and philosopher and outspoken agnostic, didn't believe in God. You know, I, I, at times I thank God for my Catholic upbringing because they did teach us some really good things. I was taught by the Sisters of the Holy Names, and they really drilled into you. You know, some, some good good guilt and good sin and Ten Commandments. Had a good, a healthy understanding of those things and hellfire brimstone and uh, devotion to God and eternal life and the deity of Christ, the Trinity, and even the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Although in practice, it, it wasn't taught very well, but at least on paper it was. But, you know, in the, in the Unitarian movement, there's very little truth in that movement. In fact, it's it's poisonous. You get that into your mind that, that, that you can't trust revelation and that nobody should tell you dogma. Not even your, your Unitarian church does not have a doctrinal statement because it's the exaltation of human reason. So what they want to, when they come together, what they want to encourage you to do is think philosophically and use your rationale and listen to what people say, but draw your own conclusions about what is true and, and, and who God is and so forth. The, the joke is when a Unitarian prays, he begins, to whom it may concern. Because you don't want to be dogmatic about who you're praying to, and, and you, it, it's all subjective, and it's all personal what truth is. So just keep this in mind. And 
I want to say one good thing about Charles Darwin. You know, in our circles, you hear a lot of bad things, a lot of ad hominem arguments against him that he was this and that. He was actually a very good man in a human sense. Uh, far better than a lot of people who claim to be preachers. He was, uh, he had something like 10 children. I can't remember the exact number. Uh, he loved his children. He didn't travel. He loved his wife. He was faithful to his wife his entire life. He lived, a, he was a, a gentleman scientist who lived in the country and he didn't like to be away from home. He liked to be with his kids and he took notes about a diary about his children, how tall they were, interesting things they said, their first words. He spent time with his kids every day. And he was a man of character. You know, in a worldly sense, we would say he was a good man. And three of his children died in, in uh, childhood. And he, all of his letters are online. If you really want to get to know the man, you can go to uh, Darwin Online or the Darwin Project. Uh, one of these is held by the University of Cambridge, and all of his let letters are there, hundreds and hundreds of letters. You can find about the real man. And he's actually a very admirable person, but he didn't believe in God. He, he, he actually studied for the Anglican priesthood at one point, but he was kind of wavering. And when graduation and ordination came up, he decided not to go forward because he was afraid under questioning, he would have to admit that I really don't believe this stuff. And, and then he went on the, you know, the, the, the travels on the Beagle where he traveled South America. And that's where he developed some of his theories about evolution. When he came back, he, during that time, there's records of him actually debating with some of the sailors about the authority of scriptures. He was holding the scriptures. He had studied the writings of Paley. He was probably the leading apologist of that day. He had to study that in the university, the, 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 uh, the argument from design of the watchmaker theory. That was Paley's argument. But by the time he returned from those journeys, even though he defended the Bible to some people during, the, during that time, in the next couple of years, he pretty much became an agnostic. Interestingly enough, his, his wife and children would still go to church on Sundays, and he'd walk them to the church gate, but then he'd go for a walk by himself. So they went to the Anglican church in the, in the town of Down where, where they lived. But you just have to put this in context. His wife was Unitarian, even though he went to an Anglican church. And the record is, even though he wasn't with them, when they would go to church, if the, if the liturgy of the church that day, if they were reciting one of the Trinitarian creeds, like the Nicene Creed, she'd tell her children to face the back of the church and be silent as a protest against the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, can you just imagine you're, you're, you're an Anglican priest, and this big row of children and a woman are turning around facing the back wall where you recite the truths of the Christian faith. But there's a lot of Unitarians. And just for the record, a lot of our founding fathers were heavily influenced by the Unitarian concept. We have this concept where we were found by these fine Bible-believing Christians. They were all great people. Well, no, they weren't. Some of them were deists. And um, Thomas Jefferson particularly rejected all supernaturalism. Uh, he still liked the, the moral teachings of the Bible. He, he actually developed what was called the, the Jefferson Bible, where he went through and he cut out all the supernatural portions and just left the philosophical portions that he liked. Well, that's just heresy. So, so I, you, you do not want to defend Thomas Jefferson as one of the fine Christian founders of this country. It's quite the opposite.
So I, I say all this to say that, to say one important thing. I have nothing against him as a scientist or as a man or a father, or whatever. And I actually think he, I think he was right. Since he didn't believe in God, of course, what are you going to believe in? He came to a naturalistic explanation of how we got here. And if there is no God, we should all be Darwinian evolutionists. But if there is a God and he has revealed to us the truth that he has created us, why would anybody want to be an evolutionist? It doesn't make any sense. Now, turning your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 1 for a second, let's look at what the Revelation says, and I'll show you the greatest argument in all the Bible against evolution. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, that's what God has revealed to us. We've been created in the image and likeness of God. What that means is we are like him. The, the, the two words, the Hebrew words for image and likeness are really synonyms. You know, when, when I see two words and and in between, what I first thing I want to do is I want to look up the Hebrew and I want to see what's the distinction. This one's saying this one, this one's adding in this. But when you look them up, they're so close together. What it appears to be is the second one is just reinforcing the first one. It really doesn't add too much to it. And if you notice, uh, that's kind of communicated even by the, the text. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. But in 27, it says, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created. It doesn't repeat the word likeness because it's just so synonymous. In the second one, image is, is encompassing image and likeness. But what does that mean? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean that physically we look like God because God doesn't have a physical body. So it can't be that. What does it mean? Well, because we're so intellectual. We're, people say, you know, we share like 99.7% DNA with, with, with chimpanzees. We're almost the same. I go, really? Now, I don't have a degree in genetics, but go to the zoo and spend an hour looking at a chimpanzee and tell me we're like only 3% difference. I mean, they're absolutely numbskulls, uh, spending all their time scratching themselves. Uh, and then you, you see the amazing uh, qualities of even a human child, and you're going to tell me there's only a 3% difference? I, I don't know what your genetics are, but that doesn't add up in, in my book. We are, we, are, we are profound, amazing creatures. We are the only creature who can contemplate, like, why am I here? What is the meaning of my existence? We are the only ones who seem to be aware that we are aware that we are aware that we are aware. We, we can philosophically go back layer into layer into layer and, and contemplate things that no animal can even come near to thinking about. They look in a mirror and they're like, someone can't even figure out it's them. The, the higher ones, higher intelligence can. But that's like a big deal. Like, hey, the dolphin can tell he's looking at himself and he's kind of like, Flapping, you know, a fin over here and going, wow, look at that. Can't. And they want to look underneath them where they can't see with their own eyes. They say, that, look how intelligent it is. 
well, look how intelligent a child is. This child is talking to you. I mean, when my daughter was was four, she's talking to college students with using their big words, you know, and she'd set them straight. She said, well, actually, it's like this, you know, and, and she would, you know, four, they, they found it so humorous because obviously she didn't know what she's talking about, but she knew how to talk. So I, I would just propose to you, but, but, but think about this. Some of us, as we get older, are going to develop dementia. Our intelligence is going to go down. Our memory is going to get shortened. Are we, are we still creating the image and likeness of God? Absolutely. It's not an intelligence thing. It's not a physical body thing. What is it? He said, well, it's a moral sensibility. We're the only moral creatures. Well, maybe. I don't know. Some people say animals have some sense of when they've done something wrong. Maybe they're just because your dog's cowering because he tore up the furniture when you come home. Maybe he just been you know, discipline so many times for doing that. He, he just knows it's going to be a bad day. I don't know. But um, some people have brain injuries and or get older and, and even their moral stability gets shaken. So what does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? Well, I'll tell you one thing I know that it means. You and I have an immortal soul and spirit. No animal has. Now, get, don't, don't misunderstand me because the scriptures, when they talk about animals and even plants, talk of them having nefesh or breath or life, which is equivalent to a soul. It has life. But what we have is an immortal soul that will live forever and ever. Did you know that every person on earth will live forever with the angels? Now, which angels? That's another story. Some with God's angels, some with Satan's angels. But every person alive today, and you and I, are going to live forever and ever and ever. That's not true of your dog or your chimpanzee, should you have one, or a great ape, or, or any other the animal kingdom. Now, again, just for the record, if you have to have your puppies, your kittens, going to be in heaven, God will work that out for you. But they don't have immortal souls and spirits. That is something unique about us. That's something godlike about us. Okay. We, we also have spirits that connect with God so that we can worship him in spirit and truth. Uh, Romans chapter 8 talks about his spirit witnesses to our spirit that we're children of God. There's a communication going on between the spirit of God and our spirit. Animals don't have that. And just think about that. If, if, if you have sympathies for evolution through natural selection and other natural processes, now they have the extended synthesis, they've all come to the conclusion. Well, actually, what Darren said wouldn't work very well. Natural selection just doesn't have the creative power to, to produce what we have. So they keep adding things on. They've got like 14 or 15 things now that all contribute to this, and they refer to it as the extended synthesis, and it keeps getting longer. Well, and maybe it's a little bit of this too, and there must have been some of that there, and it's really getting very complex. We'll put it all together and, and look at all those natural processes and tell me how you're going to get an immortal soul and how you're going to get a spirit that can connect with God. How are you going to get volition, not just instinct, but volition that you're able to make free will choices between good and bad. This, this is a, a godlike feature. And once you define a human being as it's defined here, a person creating the image and likeness of God, just give up on evolution because there's no natural process that can produce a supernatural result. Natural selection can only select what's already there 
which works best in an environment. Well, how do you get an immortal soul there? Where does that come from? In fact, where does any of it come from? Because natural selection is only selecting what's there. It doesn't explain, well, how did there get there? You following me? So I want you to step back and think about this. What's really unique about you is not that you're so smart or so beautiful. or It's not because you walk on two legs. It's not because you have opposable thumbs. You can make tools and use tools. Those, that's what they call a human. They've reduced down a human is a person who's bipedal uh, predominantly, uh, uses tools. Some would say talks. A couple other things like that. That's a human. That's not a human. Human is a, fundamentally a person creating the image and likeness of God. Have you heard about, there's a lawsuit that came out in the news recently. I, I wish I remember the na- name of the, the woman, but there was a woman who died in the 1950s. And they took some of her cells and they've been using them ever since in laboratory research. And there's now, they, they reproduce them and they use them in different pharmaceutical testing and they, they estimate there could be something like if you, if you went around the world and collected all of her cells that have different laboratories, there's maybe like 10 tons of them or something. Now the family, just the last few weeks, has filed a lawsuit. I don't even know who, I don't know who you sue. Um, I'm sure they found a lawyer and a lawyer figured out, well, sue everybody. And, and they're saying they, they took our ancestors, our grandmother's cells without her permission and they've been reproducing them and using them, and they haven't given the family any royalties from that or whatever. And, and, and they wouldn't like me to say this, but just for the record, I don't care if there's 100 tons of her cells. That's not her. Okay? That's, that's at best her body. Your body is not you. Okay? Somebody described... Well, what's really important is your soul. It's the you that's inside your body, your soul and spirit, which are almost inseparable according to the book of Hebrews. That's you. Your body is where your soul resides for a few years. And when that lady died back in the 1950s, the, 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 the you inside of her, the, the she, left her body and went into the next life before God, and her body went into the grave, and they... Without her permission, her family's permission, they took some of her cells, and they've kept those alive in Petri dishes ever since. But at least from a biblical point of view, that's not her. All right? That's just, you say, well, it's got her DNA. Well, yeah, it's got the DNA of her body. Somebody said, your body is just the garage in which you park your soul for a time. That's, that's more biblical than the way most people look at it. So I'd go so far to say this is, Even if Darwin was right about everything, all he's explaining is where your body came from. It's not actually, I don't even think it's a good explanation. But let's just for the sake of argument, let's say he was right. All he's explained is the body. He hasn't explained the you inside of your body. And that's all that really matters, isn't it? I mean, people make a big deal about their bodies now. They'll tell you, two seconds after they're dead, they won't give a hoot about where their body is to be caring about is where, where are they going to spend eternity? That's, I mean, look at all the time people put in. I want to, I'm going to go pick out my plot, you know, and I'm going to get a view of the river and I want to be next to some important people. I want to have a nice monument. I want to tell you 10 seconds after you're dead, you won't care where your body is. 
because you will have separated from your body and your body will be absolutely meaningless to you. And you'll be heading towards the presence of God for God to judge your future estate. And all will be matter then is you. Okay. And so even if Darwin's right, he's wrong because all he's talking about is the physical body. So where did, where did the you inside your body come from? This supernatural you that has God-like volition, that has a God-like eternal spirit, eternal in the sense that you'll live forever and ever and ever. A trillion years from now, you are still going to be alive. Now, if you're a Christian, it's going to be great. Because according to the book of Ephesians, for, for, for the ages to come, God's going to be lavishing you with his love and his grace and blessings. And, and he doesn't even tell us what that's going to be, because if, if he did everything he told us, we'd have like 10 more questions. So we hardly know anything about what the next life is, except that it's going to be perfect, and it's going to be with God. And think about this. Why did he create you with, with an eternal soul and spirit? What is he saying by that? Now, I don't want to get any married couples here in trouble, so... Just take what I'm saying here with a grain of salt. Don't, don't take me too seriously. But what do we say when you get married? We say, well, till death do we part. And you know, when a young Christian couple is really in love, the, the concept of spending our rest of our lives together, it's going so well, and you're so in love and infatuated, it sounds really good. And you know, after about 20 years, you're going like, well, this is kind of hard, you know? And this guy, when this gal, oh my goodness, but you still love each other, there's that bond, okay? But then there's this really kind of strange Christian doctrine that, that in the next life, we're going to be like the angels. We're not going to be either married or given in marriage. That's why we say till death do we part. But when you're really bonded with somebody, you go, well, kind of should continue on to the next life. That seems like it would be better. But then again, if you, for some of you, I'm not, I don't know you, so I can say lots of things here today. If you knew that you're going to be married to this person for eternity, you'd probably go, oh my goodness, I, I'm just trying to be a good spouse to get out of this life. I got it forever and ever and ever. And, 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 you know, what did the apostles say when the Lord explained to them that, you know, uh, the divorce was, wasn't pleasing to the Lord. And they said, well, you know, it sounds like impossible then who'd want, who we should never want to get married. You know, that was their kind of concept. This is like, this is overwhelming, this concept, but think about this. God created you for a relationship with him forever and ever and ever. That's how much he loves you. He, he didn't say for 75 years or 85 years, and then we're done. He didn't say, I'm going to save you and bring you to heaven and put you on a paradisal planet somewhere and just get out of my sight. You guys really bother me. He's going to create a new heavens and he's going to create a new earth. And God is going to dwell in the midst of the new Jerusalem. And he's going to be our light and we're going to enjoy a loving relationship with him forever and ever and ever. That is our creator. That's the commitment he made to us from the very beginning. And it got messed up by sin, so he came after us again, and he sent his son to die for us, to bring us back to him, so we could enjoy eternity with him forever and ever and ever. That's our creator. And that's why we should, we should worship and bow down before our God and our maker, because that's who he is. 
this great and wonderful God cares that much about you? I mean, some of you say, I don't even care that much about myself. Like, why? why? Some of us fight we can just with self loathing and, and, and see ourselves as despicable and can hardly look ourselves in the mirror. And we're just so, especially as Americans, you know, so self conscious and self aware and self focused to think that the great God cares about us that much. So I ask you again. When was the last time you really just got down on your knees and worshiped the God who loves you and created you in his image and likeness? Now, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but I want you to even think about this. Have you ever in your Christian life thanked God for just having created you? Okay, I'm not talking about, you know, thank you, Lord, for everything for creating me, blah, 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 blah. You know, kind of like when you're a kid, you know, and your mother gives you something, oh, what do you say? And you kind of dry, okay, thank you. No, but I mean that you really thanked God for just having created you. I think if the truth was known, a lot of people here would say, well, I've never actually done that. You know, which is kind of curious because you thank God when you eat your food. You thank him for that new car. You thank him for every little thing in your life. But this huge thing that he created you hardly gets any attention at all. In fact, I would guess there's some of us that kind of feel like, I'm not sure. I'm glad he did create me. Life's been hard, filled with disappointments. I think a lot of people, the truth be known, would say, you know, I just wish I'd never existed. It's, life is not what I thought it was going to be. It's tough. And I've been so disappointed, so hurt. Bad things have happened to me. And, and they have. I'm not trying to deny that. And, and for some terrible things. My youngest daughter, Grace, she's a social worker. She works at Stanford University Hospital in the trauma, trauma ward. She helps people going through crises in their lives. And um, she was raised in a Christian home. And when she was at the university studying to become a social worker, one day her professor, it was a woman, took the entire class out into the school parking lot, the university there, and lined them up in a big line. It was going to be a lesson on empathy. So the professor stepped back about, you know, 20 yards or something. She says, okay, now, everybody whose parents divorced when you were a child, take one step forward. About half the class took a step forward. Everybody who has a close relative in prison, take a step forward. More came forward. Everyone who's been sexually assaulted, take a step forward. Everyone who uh, has a drug addiction of some sort or struggles with that, take a step forward. Everyone who's suffered, for, went through thing after thing. Well, after about 20 of these, everybody's way down there. My daughter, Grace, is still at the starting line. She hasn't taken a single step. Everybody's looking back like, what's with that girl? Who's that white girl back there? Did anything ever happen to her in her entire life? Well, nothing on that list just happened to line up because so much of the bad stuff that happens is as a result of, you know, sin in our lives and whatever. But she's had her own issues. When she was a sophomore in high school, she developed a headache, turned into a migraine, that turned into a headache that was every day, 24-7, nonstop, and went on for like three years. It was no escape. It was really difficult. And that's why she went into social work, because she, she learned to empathize with people and their suffering and does really well at it. But, but you can see, if you don't have answers from God, if you don't have a purpose for living, a lot of people just, I just wish I never was born to begin with. 
And if you're going to just look at these years of your life, yeah. But I want you to, no matter how bad your life's been, I'm, I'm, I hate to, I have sympathy for you because I know some people have here lives, they were, were horrific, absolutely horrific. But you got to put it into the context. God has created you to spend eternity with him. And if you know him, you're going to live with God in the new Jerusalem where there's no tears, there's no sorrow, where there's only joy and bliss forever and ever and ever. And yes, this little, little bit of a life can be hard, but in the context of it all, can you not thank God that he loves you that much? And to just bow before your creator, your maker, and worship him. It's amazing if you think about it. We are God-like beings. We are the offspring of God, creating the image and likeness of God to enjoy a relationship with him forever. The Westminster Confession really hit it right. They said, what, what is the purpose of, what is the end purpose of man? The end purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's perfect. To glorify God. That's why we're here, to bring honor to our God and our creator. And starting even now, to enjoy a relationship with him they will last forever. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do come before you and thank you for having created us, for loving us that much to give us life. And we pray, Lord, in this life, we would honor you, especially in times of difficulty, that we would show men and angels that you're a great God and we love you, not not for what you give us, not for good circumstances, but because of who you are. As a son honors his father and as a servant respects his master, it is appropriate and morally correct that we love you, our God and our father. And we honor you through our obedience, our maker who holds us in your hands and sustains us and gives us life and breath. And we ask, Lord, who are we that you would Do this for us, not only making us, but sending your son to die for us and revealing him to us and giving us your scriptures and giving us the hope and the promise of eternal life with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.